We're going to look tonight at Jonah. And this is a story really about the missionary God, God the missionary God, and the reluctant prophet. And probably some of you know the basic story, but we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4 in particular, and we're going to start there at chapter 3, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, let's uh, follow along as I read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together, and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that you're a God who pursues rebels and fools, people that don't deserve mercy, people that think they deserve mercy, people that know they don't deserve mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would see your heart revealed even more clearly through your word tonight and through the foolishness of preaching. So send your spirit to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 3, verse 1 starts, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And you probably know the story, but even if you don't, you might say, a second time? Okay. Why did God have to repeat himself? If you know the story, you know why God had to repeat himself. Because back in chapter 1, when God told Jonah to go and announce to the city of Nineveh that in 40 days he was going to destroy it, Jonah ran the other way, exactly the other way. He wanted no part of God's plan. You can read about that in chapter chapter 1 and 2 of Jonah. Uh, As you may know the story, um, he ends up on a ship, he ends up getting tossed overboard, he ends up getting swallowed by a fish. We prayed uh, the prayer that he prays from the belly of the fish. He gets vomited back up, and then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and this time he does exactly what the Lord tells him to do. But the question is, why wouldn't Jonah want to announce destruction to Nineveh? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but what, what God had told him to say was, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And again, the question, why wouldn't Jonah want to say that? Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are brutal, brutal people. Enemies of God's people, Israel, but particularly brutal people. Uh, we actually have, uh, archaeologists have even found a depiction of one of the practices that the Assyrians are most known for, which was to take giant fish hooks and impale people through the mouth and lead them around, sometimes through the nose, but often through the mouth. And they would string them together as they carried them off into exile, far away from their home. That's what they did. They came in, they wiped people out, they enslaved the population, they took it into exile with giant fish hooks in their mouths. They're not nice people. They're not good people at all. And you would think that if God gives you the opportunity to blast them in his name, you'd want to do it. Wouldn't you? You'd think Jonah would be delighted to tell them God's judgment is coming. I don't know about you, but I've known Christians that seem to delight in telling people that God's judgment is coming. Sometimes they, you know, park themselves out in front of Circle K, you know, right? They seem to come every year, right? They seem to delight in talking about God's judgment and talk very little about God's mercy. You'd think Jonah would have wanted to do that. What's going on? Well, you might say, well, maybe he's scared. I mean, that's a pretty daunting task to go to the capital city of your enemies and tell them that God is going to destroy the place. That would make sense. The Assyrians really are a dangerous people. But as you read the rest of the story, particularly the part we read tonight, you find that there's a different answer, actually. Now, before we get to that, look what happens. Jonah goes, he announces that destruction is coming, and the people believed 
God. Now, we talked last week, right, about repentance, true and false repentance. And as far as we can tell, this is pretty genuine repentance. A couple signs. One, it seems deep. It seems specific. They're owning that they've done great evil. And it also seems motivated not just by seeing themselves as guilty, but by hope in God's mercy. Did you see in verse 9, part of the king's proclamation, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. True repentance isn't just saying, oh, okay, you got me, God, I'm guilty. Uh, I promise I'm never going to do this again, right? This is what we talked about last week. True repentance is seeing the hope of mercy in the smiling face of God for sinners who don't deserve it. Otherwise, all you're going to do when your sin is exposed is just hide again as soon as you can. Okay, that hiding place didn't work very well. God found me out. I better find another hiding place. And for a lot of people, that's what repentance is, is like trying to find a new hiding place. But real repentance, see, is coming to God because you believe that he's merciful and that he won't cast out those who come to him and sincerely desire his saving mercy. So this seems genuine. And then there's God's response. God relents from the disaster that he said he was going to do to them. Now, I don't know if this raised the question for you. It certainly raises it for me. What's going on here? I thought God doesn't change his mind. You know that? It says that in 1 Samuel 15, 29. The God of Israel is not a man that he should lie or repent. It says a similar thing in Numbers. Several times in the Old Testament, very clearly, God does not change his mind. So what's going on here? Well, there, there's something important for you to understand about uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. And it's this phenomenon of conditional prophecy. And, and here's the way it works. And we actually have... Um, numerous examples of this, not just in the Bible, but in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. It seems that it was a pretty regular grammatical feature to issue conditional statements without stating explicitly the if clause, so that it's assumed but not explicitly stated. And you might think, oh, I'm going to show you a place in Jeremiah where it specifically says this is always what's going on. So here's, here's what it's saying. When God says, I'm going to destroy this place, and that seems like an absolute promise, the people heard it and they understood it because this is the way they talked in the ancient Near East. They understood it that there was an unless you repent, even though the unless was not explicitly stated. Now, now why is that helpful here? Or why might you think that is going on here? Well, that's certainly the way Jonah understood it isn't it? Jonah said, the reason Jonah doesn't want to go tell them that destruction is coming is because he knows that even when he announces judgment is coming, it's conditional. And because God is a merciful God, even his announcements of judgment are actually merciful. Man, if you don't understand that, you really will misunderstand a lot of the Old Testament. God doesn't just go around saying, I'm going to destroy you, and then next week I'm going to destroy you, and then I'm going to destroy you. His destruction announcements 
are always conditional prophecy. Look at the way Jeremiah explains it in chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. <laughs> so, God is saying very clearly through Jeremiah, this is a basic principle that you need to use to interpret these statements of God. And like I said, it was something understood in the ancient Near East as well. So, when God announces judgment, the Ninevites rightly hear it as an opportunity and an invitation to repent. And Jonah knows that that's what it is, and that's why he doesn't want to say it. Does that make sense? Now, I'll also tell you there's one other little thing. Some of you may have been raised in churches that talk a lot about ethnic Israel and how all the promises God made to them need to be fulfilled. And I will tell you, this issue of conditional prophecy is very helpful in interpreting some of that stuff, too. Because there's a whole school of prophecy interpretation called dispensationalism that really banks on the idea that everything God has ever said to ethnic Israel has to take place for a nation called Israel. And I think this Jeremiah passage is pretty helpful in helping you see that if the conditions are not met, that may not be the case. All right, so, so there you have conditional prophecy, helping you understand what's going on here, why Jonah is upset, why he doesn't want to preach, why the Ninevites feel invited to repent, and why God relents. But what you really need to see here, zoom out and see the big picture. God is the great missionary God who cares about all peoples and blessed Israel to be a blessing. Now you can go way back to Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abraham, calls him, he was, God, Abraham wasn't looking for God. He's just kind of walking along. And God says, leave your people. I'm going to make of you a great nation. But I'm not just going to make out of you a great nation for your own sake or for your own enjoyment or for your own blessing. No, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the other nations. So built into the heart of what it means to be God's people is this calling that you've been blessed to be a blessing. Here's the thing, though. Israel doesn't seem to really live this out the way they're supposed to. Over and over and over again, God tells them that you've been blessed to be a blessing, that I have a heart for all the peoples, not just this one nation, that I'm blessing this one nation to be a blessing to the others. And Israel seems to not get it, but it doesn't matter. God is not thwarted, and he doesn't change his plan. In fact, the book of Jonah is an interesting book because it's a story about Jonah, but it also is a parable in a sense. The whole book really is about, will Israel do what God has called her to do, which is to be a blessing to the nations, even the nations that they may not like, even the nations that may be a danger or a threat in some way. And that's why the book ends with that question hanging in the air. Did you feel the weight of it? God says, shouldn't I pity a city 
with 120,000 children, that's the image there, people that don't know their right from their left, are little kids. The 120,000 little children and the cattle. I love that God cares about the cattle. <laughs> so that's a good verse. If you know, one day you're, you have kids and they ask you if pets go to heaven, you say, well, at the end of Jonah, God seems to care about cattle. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> so God cares about 120,000 children. And it's like God cares about this great city, doesn't he? And that question hangs there, right? And it's a question that is there for Jonah. It's a question that's there for all of Israel. And it's a question for us. A question that presses the church. And here's the heart of the question. Do we rejoice in the things God rejoices in? Or would we rather stay mad unless God serves our agenda? Remember, Jesus said there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who do not need to repent. I don't know if I get that impression from most churches that I've ever been a part of. Like that God is thrilled when one sinner repents. Is that what thrills you? Is that what thrills me? Do we care? God has always been about blessing all the peoples of the earth, not just Israel. And this is good news. Uh, he says this uh, through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. I love this passage in Isaiah 49, 6. I remember one of my favorite seminary professors, Jaron Bars, was teaching a class on missionary principles. And he got to this verse, and he read it, and he had to stop class and weep for like an hour. And class was done. Listen to this. This is what God says. It's too small a thing for you, the Messiah, my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's not enough for you just to save Israel, God says. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in Acts chapter 13. And there's this great passage where Paul is preaching to Gentile people. They didn't know God. They didn't know the Bible. But he reads that verse to them in his sermon. He says, you know, as God has said through his prophet, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And it says there in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced in God. And as many of them as been appointed to eternal life believed. The power of God's sovereign grace through this passage, this promise, which expresses the heart of God. See, we tend to think of the gospel just as like this little legal formula, but really the heart of the gospel is about expressing God himself. God's character comes through the gospel. And the heart of God, the missionary God, is it's too small a thing for my Messiah, for Jesus, to just come for the house of Israel. It'd be way too small a thing. I mean, goodness, it was a big deal to come for Israel. Israel didn't deserve it. Israel had turned their nose at God over and over and over again. That was mercy enough, but God said, that's nothing. I want to come for the whole of the earth, the peoples of all the earth. And that's why in Revelation, the very end of the Bible, you see this picture of a great multitude of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, because that's God's plan. It's been his plan from the beginning. And nothing, even his unfaithful people, will be able to thwart that plan. Even if you get on a ship and you try and go the other way, God is not going to back down 
from his plan. Well, Jonah doesn't like God's plan, does it? He pouts, he gets mad, but look at how God pursues his pouting prophet. Because maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe you, you hear this, you're like, you know, I, my heart is not really resonating with God's heart for the nations of the earth. Well, here's good news for people that would rather pursue their own agenda. Jonah says, look in chapter 4, I knew it. I knew it. You ever been so mad, you know? I knew it. I knew this. That really gets me mad. If I know something's going to happen, I do everything I can to prevent it, and then it happens anyway, that just makes me extra mad. And that's Jonah. I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran away. So there you go. He didn't run away because he was scared. He ran away because he knew that if he went and announced destruction, these people were going to apprehend that God was merciful and it was going to be all they needed. Even that little drop. You might think, how did they find grace in the gospel in an announcement of destruction? That's because God's grace is so huge that when his spirit moves, even a little morsel is enough to draw these people to believe him and to turn to him. Jonah's anger reveals why he ran. Because he knew that if the Ninevites repented, God would show them mercy, and he couldn't stand to think that these awful people who took people away with giant fish hooks in their mouth should receive mercy. They didn't deserve it. And I love verse 2. Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious God and that you would relent from disaster. Man, the disconnect. Now, lest we put ourselves above Jonah, I would submit that we have these kind of disconnects all the time. But it's astonishing, isn't it? I knew that you were a gracious God. That's why I'm so mad. Does Jonah really know what God is like? I mean, here's the thing. That's a very good theologically correct answer. Right? Look what he says. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's covenant love, hesed. Like, that's basically the declaration of faith that Israelites were expected to make and to understand. That's like, you know, okay, you know, like if you've ever been in a church where they have like certain words you're supposed to pray, like a sinner's prayer, you know, and certain things you're supposed to say to prove to people you're really a Christian. This is like what the Israelites would say. So he says the stuff. It's it. But it doesn't seem to have affected his heart at all, does it? Look at the disconnect. He's got a good theological answer. You're a gracious God. But the character of God has not penetrated his heart at all. And look at the self-righteousness. Jonah doesn't seem to think that the character and mercy of God matters for him. Do you get the sense that he sees that he too needs the mercy of God? I mean, this is, not, this is chapter 4, right? Like, chapter 1, he ran away. And God hunted him down, sent a fish. He gets out, he does what God says, but he's still mad. And he still doesn't seem to think that he needs mercy. He's just mad that God shows mercy to other people. But if you're mad that God's showing mercy to other people, it's usually an indication that you think you deserved it and they didn't. And that shows that you're pretty far away from mercy. So he's got a good theological answer, but he doesn't understand the grace of God. And all I say is, woe to us if we can give good theological answers without the mercy of God penetrating our hearts. Unless you think, like, you reach a point where that's not a problem anymore, I'm just going to tell you it's always a problem.
It's always an issue. It's always something you can pray for me about and pray for each other about. But then look at what Jonah says. He says, take my life. Actually, I had a seminary professor, Dr. Winter, um, who did a whole series of sermons in chapel on God's suicidal saints. You'd actually be surprised how many people in the Bible want to die and ask God to take their life. And at one level, I'm very encouraged that that stuff's not edited out of the Bible. Because I think one of the barriers for people following Jesus or even coming to Christ is to think that they've got to be perfect people who've got it all together. And to find, you know, God's prophets. Now, Jonah, you know, he's mad. We're going to talk about that and the connection between his anger and his despair. But, you know, even guys like Elijah, you know, after Mount Carmel, where he has this amazing victory over the prophets of Baal, it's not very long after that before he wants to kill himself. It happens a lot. Even though I'm going to say some things here about what's going on with Jonah, I want to be clear to say that there's lots of reasons why people may feel suicidal thoughts, right? Though not all suicidal saints are alike in their struggles and where they're coming from, in this one, we do get some analysis that's, I think, helpful. Jonah goes from anger to despair. And that does show us an interesting, important connection. Because here's what you need to understand. Anger energizes you. It stirs you for a fight. It says something's wrong, and it's time to bow up. Now, whether the thing you're angry about is righteous or unrighteous, is not important at this point. What's important is to understand anger energizes you to do something. And when it can't do anything, when it gets blocked, when it's not possible for your anger to succeed or to accomplish something, it tends to just turn into despair. And and, and sometimes people that are depressed and despairing are actually more angry than they realize. It's often connected, and often even trying to tease out what's going on, it's important to see this connection. One of my favorite um, counselors is a guy, Dan Allender, and I know some of the ladies on Monday night read his book, The Cry of the Soul, which is an excellent book about emotions and, and all this sort of stuff. And he talks about that. He's got this kind of intriguing quote that that I think is really helpful and I want to bring in here. He says, anger is too good to waste because anger is always revealing your heart direction. And here's the thing. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond understanding. So if there's something that can help you understand a little bit about your heart, like anger, It's too good to waste. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians think, well, anger doesn't belong in a Christian. I should just get rid of anger. I should just stuff my anger. And when you do that without pondering your anger, examining it, asking questions, you really miss a really important opportunity. And so look at what God does. He he helps Jonah ask questions about his anger. Do you do well to be angry? You see what God's doing? Okay, you're angry. He doesn't shame him, but he asks him, ponder your anger. Do you do well to be angry? And at first, Jonah doesn't want to talk about it. 
The first time that question comes, he just leaves, he goes outside the city, he builds like a little hut, and he sits out there, and he's just going to wait and see what happens to the city. And you know that he knows that the city is not going to get destroyed, and he's just going to get madder and madder and madder, right? But that's what he does. And then God, you know, asks him, you know, again, is this, is your anger good? Is your anger good? I think it's worth thinking about this. Despair is often connected to anger, but both of them ultimately, certainly for Jonah, are connected to worship. Now, here's the irony. We read chapter 2 as the call to worship. Chapter 2, verse 8, one of the translations that I like says this, um, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And you have to ask, has Jonah really understood that? I mean, he didn't seem to understand God is a gracious God and slow to anger. Does he understand that? Because it seems that what's going on here at the end is he's still clinging to a worthless idol. Here's the idol he's clinging to. He wants a God who is God on a leash. He doesn't want the God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And it's not for you, O prophet, to tell me who I can have mercy upon. I am God and I am free to do what I want. And what I want is for this great city to turn and repent. Because I care about this great city. And Jonah wants God on a leash who will do his bidding. And when God doesn't do what he wants, he wants to die. Have you ever been there? I'll bet you have. I don't know if you've been brave enough to admit to yourself, but there have been times, I think, for almost every Christian I know, almost every person I know, where you're just so mad at God that you would rather die than let him have his way. And look at what God does. He still pursues his prophet. Now, if you think that the great evil that Nineveh did was bad, what Jonah's doing is is pretty bad. It's really bad. It's just as bad. It really is. But God continues to pursue Jonah with a question designed to help him reflect on his anger. And then God sends a plant to bring shade. And that's kind, isn't it? Because it's a desert, okay? But then, that night, he sends a worm to kill the plant. And you're like, what in the world is going on? It's one of those stories where it's so crazy that only God could do it. Like, you ever have things in your life where you're like, man, this doesn't make any sense at all. God must be actually doing something like really specific here. Now, sometimes you can read what he's doing wrong, but sometimes some of the weirdest stuff seems pretty obvious, especially if it's driving you to dependence upon God, which is what God is doing here. Again, God asks Jonah if he does well to be angry. And again, Jonah contends with God. And again, you see, God is so patient with his pouting prophet. And then, and this is how the book ends, he invites Jonah to get a little perspective. You're all mad about the plant? You didn't birth the plant. You didn't grow the plant. The plant was a gift. And it's really up to me to give this gift and to take it away. 
Because ultimately, I'm after your heart, Jonah, and it's so far from me. And if I have to give you a plant or take away a plant, I'll do it. But do you care about what I care about? I want your heart aligned with mine, Jonah. And so that's the question that ends the book. And it just hangs there in the air, doesn't it? Do you care about this great city? Because I care about this great city. And it's not enough just to say that you have the right theology about who I am. Is your heart aligned with my heart? Or are you going to cling to a worthless idol of a God who just exists to do your bidding? A God on a leash. I love Sandra's song that we sang, All You Refugees. You know, because God's question is not just a question to Jonah. It's a question to Israel, and it's a question that addresses us. And, and I love the way, even when you think about refugees, it's why there's, it's kind of surprising the way she uses the image in that song. Actually, she didn't write the song. Um, Chelsea and Flo and uh, somebody else wrote the song. But she, th this question, like, turns things around because you always think of refugees as other people. You know? And, and that's part of the problem with Jonah. <laughs> like, it's the other people that need God's grace or might get God's grace, but I don't need it. He knows about it, but he doesn't think he needs it. You know, this story is not the last time in the Bible that God would call his people to go to a people they didn't want to reach, people they hated, even dangerous people. I don't know if you know the story of St. Patrick. It's one of the most remarkable stories, right? He gets captured and made a slave of the Irish people, and he manages to escape. And then he decides to go to the Pope and plead with him to send him as a missionary to the people who had enslaved him. And he does. He gets sent there, and the gospel comes to Ireland. I was reminded of this today. My wife was uh, connected on Facebook with a kid who used to be our neighbor. Can I tell this? I can tell this story. And um, I, I was thinking about this kid because, you know, he's a, he's a good kid, but some of his friends, you know, he used to live next door to us. And... Um, some of the crowd he hung out with were not like the kind of kids we wanted in our neighborhood. There was definitely times when there'd be like 15 or 20 kind of teenage boys, kind of rough crowd hanging out at the light pole at the, you know, at the end of our driveway. And I saw a gun one time. As a matter of fact, I even called the police one time because they were showing off a gun. And I thought, I just don't want 20 kids messing around with a gun in front of my house. And eventually they moved. And... Um, I mean, he's a, he's a Kurdish boy, right? So he was literally a refugee, lived, his family at least, lived in a refugee camp in Turkey as they escaped Iraq. And it seems that he's come to Christ. It's like, and I remember thinking, I, I'm trying to even think, like, did we ever speak the gospel to this kid? I think when they left, part of me was like, well, it'd be sad to see him go, but he was kind of getting mixed up with the wrong crowd, and it's probably just as well. And I had to think about that today and think like, man, what is God's heart for that kid? And thankfully, God was able to accomplish his mission without me. And maybe you know people like that. Just reminded of that. God was not done with the story. And God isn't done with a lot of stories. Now, you know, you may say, well, what does this story have to do with our current political situation? Here, here's, I just want to say this. 
You have to be really careful about how you use the Bible in informing, crafting policies of our nation, right? And I do think it's interesting. Everybody wants to say America's not the church, but then I have friends on the right and the left, and depending on the issue, they all want to just quote Bible verses. My people that would be mad about people quoting Bible verses about abortion are quoting Bible verses about refugees, like we just adopt that. And I'm just like, yeah, it's more, com- it's more complicated than that. And that's why I handed out this thing from Duke, because I thought he had some good thoughts. But I will say this. America's not the church, but God's commands to his people are a reflection of his intention for humanity. In other words, even if you're not supposed to take the laws of Israel and just adopt them as the, the laws of America, God's law speaks about human flourishing. And it seems pretty clear that welcoming the other is pretty central to God's goal for what it means to be truly human. Now, that doesn't give you an easy answer as to what you do in the here and now in light of all the different considerations that you need to make. But we as the church should know that human flourishing involves not just huddling up with people like ourselves, but welcoming the other, because that's God's heart, right? God is the great missionary God, and he won't be thwarted. He won't be thwarted. If you don't really care about that, don't despair, but ask God to change your heart. And here's the thing. He is coming after you, and he's coming after me. And when the Bible says that he's going to complete the good work he began, part of what that means is he's not going to stop until your desires are his desires, that the things that break his heart break your heart, and the things that he rejoices in, you rejoice in. And worship actually should be about tuning our hearts to that end, right? We sang that, come thou fount, tune our hearts. We hearts need a lot of tuning. They need tuning over and over and over again because they get out of tune real easy. Let's sing together and uh, the the, uh, doxology as we close. Let's stand together. See, even this is about tuning and about coming back to sanity, reminding ourselves of who he is and how everything comes from him and is for him. And that's a good reminder. We we could do a lot worse than to be reminded of that at the end of every Tuesday night. Let's sing.